By way of introducing uh, Sue and Mike, who are going to read two different passages from the Bible to us, um, just to put a bit of context, uh, as you probably know, Wednesday is Ash Wednesday, beginning of Lent, and this Sunday, therefore, in the church calendar, is the last Sunday in what we call the season of Epiphany. So it's quite interesting that we should have uh, today's uh, passage from Mark, which is otherwise known as the Transfiguration. So if we were to look at Mark's Gospel, we'd find that what happens just before this passage that we're going to hear in a minute um, is Jesus predicting his death. There is Peter deciding that Jesus is the Messiah and declaring that he would follow him uh, no matter what. And also Jesus outlining the way to the cross. After the story of the Transfiguration, Jesus comes back down from the mountain misery and need and ministers into that so as mark in his gospel constructs it the transfiguration story comes at quite a critical point this is the way i'm going to go the cross is before us it's it lies ahead of us it's a way of suffering but in the midst of that there's this glimpse of glory and that's my theme so i invite sue and mike whoever and wherever they are to read those two passages. They know who they are. The first reading is Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 8. This transfiguration. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James and John with him and led them up a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses, who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and covered them, and a voice came from the cloud. This is my son, whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly, when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. So the second reading is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 to 18, the greater glory of the new covenant. Now if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters of stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of, of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses who would put a veil over his face to present the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. But their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the old covenant is read. It has not been removed because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. 
And we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. Keep a moment of silence. Speak to us, Lord, in the moments that lie before us. Speak to our hearts. Speak to our lives. Speak words of hope. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, I'm deeply ingratitude, uh, indebted um, for your welcome again and the 12p. <laughs> Honestly, it's touching. <laughs> I noticed in the notice sheet you're short of biscuits, so if I made the same plea, probably biscuits would suddenly appear. That, that, that would be a good thing. So, um, let me share with you uh, some thoughts around this strange passage of what we call the Transfiguration. Um, yes, it is critically placed in Mark's Gospel, but then almost every verse in the Bible is critically placed. Um, my lecturer at Theological College used to say, if you're preaching on a certain passage, always have a look what came before and always have a look what comes afterwards because that will give you the context of why you know, that dialogue or that incident is recorded. So the transfiguration, um, so what, might be the first comment. Um, if there was an average Mr. and Mrs. Citizen, um, they would probably not think a great deal about this story. If there was a Mr. and Mrs. average Christian or church member, uh, we might think it's okay to hear it one Sunday in the year, but is it something that really speaks in our 21st century that feels to be relevant and real. It certainly was important to the Christians in the first century. Three of the four Gospels have an account, varying in some degree or other, of this uh, story of Jesus on the mountain, and it therefore seems to matter. It's also in one of the New Testament letters as well. Maybe we would like to travel back in time, but that ain't going to happen. All we've got is, firstly, Mark, who recorded this story as the first of the Gospel writers. About 35 years after the event, um, we can't really historically get much closer to the event than what Mark puts, us down, uh, puts down in his uh, Gospel. So, 35 years uh, after the event, after the death and resurrection of Jesus, there were a whole bunch of vigorous Christians treasuring every story uh, as they recollected the life of Jesus and his impact upon them. Peter, James and John would be eager to um, get nostalgic and tell the story again and again on this particular story of the day they went up the mountain, an encounter of the third kind. There they are. They witnessed something completely extraordinary, a glory not glimpsed again, until the cross and resurrection. So maybe we could try and discover something of its meaning. What is it about? I suggest it probably won't mean a great deal to an unbeliever. 
We can't really see how this story would bring people to faith. But as we've said, it means a lot to those people who are of faith. As it stands, it seems to be a link for the Jews who believe that at some point in the future there would be the end time. The end time would be when God eventually and finally comes to save his people and triumph over evil. Elijah and Moses, two people from the first century um, of the first Jewish understanding, sorry, believed that they were taken up to heaven without dying, that they would be present when God inaugurated this end time. So significantly in this story we have Moses, Elijah and Jesus. They're all witness to be together in one place. Maybe Peter, James and John are beginning to think this is a sign of the end. The end is coming. And to Mark's gospel hearers who were being persecuted by the Romans for their newfound faith, they probably needed to know something about we are living in end times and the imminent return of Jesus is going to happen any moment, any time. We've got clouds in this story. Clouds in the Bible have always been a sign or a metaphor for God's presence. At the end time, God would come in clouds of glory. So the disciples witnessed this shining cloud enveloping Jesus. Is that a sign of the times coming to an end? We also have in the story of Mark, his account, shining white garments, which would also suggest sort of new life, angels, resurrected people would be dressed in shining white garments. Whiteness would be a sign of purity. It's also said that at the end times, the righteous, those who have been faithful to God, would be transformed. The righteous will be transfigured with a completely different kind of beauty. Added to all of this, there is also the voice of God. So we heard it said in Mark's Gospel, the story that we heard. Um, the voice of God is speaking. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. For centuries before the birth of Christ, leading up to that momentous moment, there had been no voice from God. Nothing had been spoken. The Jews lamented that, where is our God? We don't hear him. Now he speaks. Perhaps now the painful silence would be broken and we can think of the times coming to an end. God clearly speaks to the disciples. There is a voice coming out of this cloud. There is white garments. The whole picture feels to a Jewish audience like this is the end time. Peter, bless him, love him, uh, wants to build a booth. He wants to build a shelter. He wants to construct a place where Moses and Elijah, where all these people can just stay. And we can hold on to this moment because perhaps Peter thinks this is end time. We better just hunker down and just enjoy this. It seems like Peter, James and John had an inkling that this was a momentous moment all fitting in with Jewish expectations. But, and there's always a but, almost as soon as all this happens, it's all over again. There comes a break with expectations. Suddenly the vision is gone. No more cloud, no more glory, no more Elijah, no more Moses. 
just Jesus and the three disciples. And there they are on the mountaintop. And they hear this voice. This is my beloved son, my dearest son. This is my son. Listen to him. Everything has reverted back to how it was. Perhaps Peter, James and John have got it wrong. Perhaps it wasn't the end time. Where have Moses and Elijah gone? Where has the glory gone? And Jesus begins to talk about, let's go back down the mountain. Let's begin to talk again about discipleship. Let's begin to talk about arrest, humiliation, death, resurrection. Peter, James and John may well be thinking what's going on. We just heard a voice say, this is my son. And now Jesus leads them back down into the valley. So let's talk about glory, glimpses of glory. When do we see glory and what on earth might it mean for us? Glory is such an odd idea. I'm not opposed to the transfiguration, but in most experiences of life, I don't glimpse white garments, clouds, voices of God. Most of my life is trudging through the ordinary, and I guess probably for most of us that's true. I quite often feel that I'm not alone, but it does feel like I'm swimming in a tide of all sorts of stuff that don't feel glorious, really. A good definition of glory might have something to do with honour and praise and beauty and splendour and lights and halos. They might be the words you would use to describe glory. Maybe it's hard to speak of glory because it seems so far removed from the chaotic and pain-filled world that we're in. Ours is a very anxious world and there's not seemingly a lot of glory to be seen. We speak more and more easily about the incarnation. We speak about a baby because we can relate our minds to what a baby looks like. When Christ came into our midst, in our condition, in our human form, we can understand that a little. But we confess in our creeds that Jesus is both human and fully divine. Maybe we see the human face of Jesus in the incarnation, and the divine face of Christ in the transfiguration. We might confess that the great, uh, the divine face of Jesus in great beauty is something that we could hardly gaze on because it is so glorious and beautiful. Like those opening images, we just see but a small part of something that one day, if you like, the curtains will be thrown back and we'll see the big picture. So this may seem like a really strange passage to relate to a world that we live in uh, where in our prayers, as we've just heard, there's all sorts of just really difficult stuff going on. Pain, sickness, war, civil war, economic collapse, um, people just struggling because they've got no home, trudging from Burma, as it used to be called, to Bangladesh and so many other places. It just seems, Lord, we wish there was a bit more glory to lift us out of this humdrumness. But as I said, this story comes in the middle. And really tellingly, comes in the middle. Jesus has just told them in chapter 8 of Mark, get real guys. 
If you say you want to follow me and you say that I am the Messiah, this is the road that we're going to take. And it involves some painful stuff beyond your imagining. I will suffer. I will die. I will rise again on the third day. And it may well involve you taking up that cross, laying down your life, and laying down those things that you think are important so that you can find the new life that will come about through my commitment to the way of the cross. And in all of that is the truth of what it means to live in the kingdom. So having said those things, then we get this story of the transfiguration. Thank God, I would say, that in the midst of the ordinariness, there are just occasionally moments that lift our spirits. That just give us something to cling on to, to hope for, that is worthy and other than where we are now. So the three disciples who represent me and may represent you want to cling to that moment of glory because they've just heard some bad stuff in chapter 8. We just want to hold on to the good stuff. We want holy moments bottled, bottled in a great big jar. We want to hold on to the holy moments because we can't bear to think of what you just described in terms of suffering and the way of the cross. So maybe... This story is a good news story, but it's otherworldly than where we might be in our lives today. Maybe the glory of God's presence is more present in our ordinary lives than we often realise. Maybe the glory of God is closer to us than we sometimes realise. Maybe we need to stop, slow down and listen to see whether God is speaking to us through some really ordinary things. I mean, as soon as this experience is over, there seems to be a whole load of kind of silence. This moment doesn't seem to be spoken about again as this journey unfolds to the cross. And maybe that also is good news to us because sometimes we think, Good news and be good news is about talking, singing, proclaiming and sounding very certain about everything that's going on in our faith. But I also think good news can sometimes be our silence, our dumbness, our sense of living with a mystery where we can't answer every question as to why bad stuff happens. Maybe the fact that this story of a transfiguration is strategically placed almost at the beginning of Lent is really interesting. Glory will eventually break through. Maybe we have to have a time of preparation and waiting and reflecting. A time of penitence and confession and so on. Maybe God speaks when we feel very certain about things, but maybe God also can speak when it feels like we've nothing left to say. And we just cling and hold on. We can see and hear and know God in a whole variety of ways. I believe the transfiguration story is good news in our pain-filled world. 
Because sometimes ordinary things are transformed before our very eyes. Don't know how often bread is broken and shared at this table. But it's ordinary bread, I suggest. And somehow by the mystery of God's grace, it is made to be something more than and feeds our souls. And in that, we can see the glory of God. A theologian and a commentator of uh, biblical uh, material, F.D. Brunner, said this, The purpose of our lives is to remove the veil from the Father's face and to display something of God's glory to the world. It should no longer be necessary to ask the purpose of life. The purpose of life is the glory of God. I've been in ministry for 20-odd years. I've sat at hospice bedsides. I've sat in prison cells. Um, I've sat in vulnerable places, sometimes wondering what on earth to say as God's representative called out to minister in such places. Often, I found that God ministered to me in those most unlikely places when I felt I had nothing left to give. And it was only kind of looking back on it, thinking, the glory of God overtook me. And the glory of God filled that place, filled that conversation, filled that sense of being alongside when nothing could be said that would really make any difference. On Christmas Day, uh, some of you may or may not know, I'm now leading a project at a little chapel just beyond the 12 Petty Bridge uh, in Sindelan, Dunham. And um, where the chapel is located is 500 yards from the crematorium. And we uh, have been reflecting and thinking, the crem is so close to the chapel. What can we do in the name of Christ in ministry to do anything to connect with the crematorium? And um, we'd heard, and you may know, because it's not so far from here, some Methodists um, go to the crematorium in Warrington or wherever, or cemetery, and take hot drinks. They take hot drinks on Christmas Day, Mothering Sunday, and Father's Day. And it's an amazing ministry. And we thought, we could do that at the creme, at Altrium, Altrium Creme. So I spoke to the manager of the creme in early December, and I said, what would it be like if I came with my white van a go-pack folding table, a gazebo, and 17 litres of boiling water and chocolate, coffee and tea, and just served it to people who came on Christmas Day to spend time remembering loved ones. They said, the manager said, that would be fantastic. But why would you do that? I said, I don't know really. <laughs> but we will. And we did. So my wife and I went to the crematorium on Christmas Day with said van, table, gazebo, and um, it was astonishing. And I, I want to tell you this, not to bring any attention, but just to say there was a glimpse of the glory of God in the ordinary. So we got there for quarter past nine, and by quarter to 12, we'd run out of 17 litres of boiling water. We served 55 hot drinks. That's 55 conversations with grieving people. And that's 55 people who had a drink, who wanted a drink. There was another load of people who didn't want to take a drink but still wanted to chat. That's, that's 80 conversations in, in two and a half hours. And it was free. So we just rocked up and we just said, it's free. 
Um, why? I haven't got any money. It's free. What bit of that don't you understand? <laughs> it was astonishing. There was one older man with a, a sort of smart tie jumper. He was already there when we got there. He was kind of 100 yards from where we were. We could see him sat on a little fisherman's angler's stool talking to a plaque that had his wife's name on it. So my wife went over and said, would you like a cup of tea? And he said, I'd love a cup of tea. And it was quite cold on Christmas Day, if you remember. And uh, she went back with a cup of tea for him. And he stayed another hour talking to his wife. I mean, it's not something I feel inclined to do. Um, so an hour or so later, he came back with his empty cup. And you know sometimes um, you've done something when he gave us a double-handed handshake. A smart old man, and he had tears in his eyes, he just said, thank you. So one or two people said, why are you doing this? Where are you from? And we just said, we're from the chapel round the corner. I don't think in two and a half hours we said much about faith or Jesus. But I still think, as I reflect on it, it was holy ground. And there was a sort of glimpse of the glory of God in the way people started to figure out that this was a free gift. And there was nothing we were asking in return. Where do we see the glory of God? And sometimes and often, it's in the most ordinary places. So my challenge to me in this passage is, uh, being a disciple of Christ is to be countercultural. Is to be different and other than how the world might expect us to be. So to say, here is something, and I'm not asking for anything in return. I don't even want you to come to church. I just want to give you a free gift. Um, we make this confession that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's the confession of the church. The transfiguration story gives us a clue of the assurance that this guy is both human and divine. That this guy... You need to listen to him because his life, his whole life, is extraordinary. And when you come down from this mountaintop where you glimpse the glory of God, the place that you'll go back to is this sin-filled, broken world that is often too cynical to receive this message. But just every so often, like the first screen, you can just see a glimpse of something. And somehow, and hopefully on occasions, that will sustain us when everything else seems black. That God did in Christ enter this world to redeem it. That God in Christ is still redeeming this world. Still in the midst of the brokenness. And our testimony as we go out from this place, our testimony from the previous weeks that we've lived as Christians, proves that. That we take Christ we see God's activity when we join him out there in the world. These disciples had a lot more to go through as they journeyed in the rest of the story found in Mark's Gospel. From this moment of the transfiguration, it was just going to be really tough. It was like, hang on to your hats, guys, because we don't know how we're going to feel about all this following suffering, death, resurrection stuff. This was a glimpse into the bigger picture 
that this guy is not just a man of this world. He is the redeemer of the world. And he redeems the brokenness of the world by entering into it and dying amongst it and dying for it. So this is the last Sunday in Epiphany. And Epiphany is a revelation. Epiphany is like a light-on moment. This would serve Peter, James, and John well in the years to come as they look back. Yes, we remember now that mountaintop experience told us, proved us, that what he was saying about the suffering in an earthly sense was not going to be the end of the story. The way of the cross may lie before us, but the glimpse of glory is the promise. And the curtain will be thrown back and we will see God in all his fullness. And some of this stuff that we're currently living through will be redeemed by God's grace. I believe this is the good news. And this is the way of Christ. Let me pray. God, we can't always see you because the stuff that's going on around us is so overwhelming. Make yourself known to us. Speak to us if it's a sunset, the cry of a baby, the kindness of a friend, a free gift offered without any obligation. Make yourself known to us in power, and vulnerability. Make yourself known to us as we seek to serve you and maybe step out of our comfort zone. Make yourself known to us in this place, in this community of faith. Make yourself known to us in the journey to the cross, in the season that we have before us as we prepare for Easter. Give us the eyes of faith to see beyond this world's misery and chaos and brokenness, to see a greater picture and a greater glory prepared for those who love you. And in Christ we ask all our prayers. Amen.